Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats the parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? We are back for another episode that is just about theme parks. Oh, yay. My favorite no. topic of conversation. <laughs> no more crossover theme park episodes for us. Now we're just going to talk about theme parks as just a thing. Like, as a broad topic, a subject that should be treated like literature, um, but no longer are we comparing it to, say, sporting events. Uh, no longer are we focusing on just one attraction. This is about theme parks, capital T, capital P, writ large. Uh, it's a big general subject. It's kind of my favorite kind of subject for, for those happy places. Absolutely. It's conversations like this about theme parks in general and how important they are and how like culturally pervasive they are that inspired this podcast to even exist in the first place. This is a, a topic that we've talked about extensively before, just amongst the two of us. Uh, and I'm really excited to kind of throw this out for other people to for other people to consider and ponder. Yeah. yeah, I would really like to hear more takes on this subject, because the more I think about it, the more it feels like we are limited by not being in the themed attractions industry. Like by being outside observers, we can't be completely sure about the things that we're going to say today. But we we do have some guesses based on available information and we have some background knowledge based on other forms of media that may help us kind of decipher this subject and that subject is the authorship of theme parks rides and attractions who is the author of our favorite theme parks right and this is a huge conversation a huge topic and one that's honestly really difficult to answer because like with most things most things of that scale like a theme park uh it takes a village to create and there's so many so many people that are involved in making and, and building everything from big picture concepts to laying concrete and wiring electrical and everything in between uh, it requires like a massive amount of people to get done. But sometimes uh, in, in theme parks, as well as in, in other big media and big picture things, we experience um, individuals that kind of pop out uh, as exceptional or, um, or particularly involved in the creation. Um, and since uh, since our background is not, as we said, in, in themed attractions, um, unfortunately, uh, but we do know quite a lot about things like film and television, a lot of our analogies are going to rely on comparing building a theme park to making a movie. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing about theme parks is, and, and you've already hit on this, is that they're intensely collaborative like yes these are physical spaces that are designed and enhanced artistically that also include cutting-edge technology right not to mention that they're run every day by literal armies of people <laughs> like <laughs> there, there's just so many people involved in the process of creating building, maintaining a theme park attraction 
from the artists to the writers, the designers, the architects, the engineers, the construction workers, the maintenance people, and the daily staff, it is mind-boggling to think the amount of people that have worked on an attraction. Not to mention that these things can take years to develop. Uh, I think I, I read somewhere that the uh, average uh, Disney attraction spends time in the Imagineering department for over five years before it even sees its first construction day. So for years, you've got giant teams of people working on just the concepts of the thing before it actually gets made. So years and years and tons and tons of people and a vast network of incredibly talented individuals working together to make something happen. I mean, that's a a remarkable amount of time and a, a remarkable amount of like people hours, right? Like when we talk about the amount of time that something takes, we also need to talk about all of the time it takes from all of the people involved. And it's just, it's mind boggling. And, you know, when we talk about things like movies and television and to another extent, like video games, like the amount of people working on creating the details and the spaces and the environments like that is just vast teams of people huge amounts of people teams (laughs) and we we just we can't in the space of this episode even name all of the different jobs that there are in creating an attraction oh gosh no i couldn't even begin to try (laughs) it's there's so there's so much work and unseen hard labor work that has to go into into making these things that we get to enjoy and talk about and make and and gosh even podcast about (laughs) yeah And, and and something that i just kind of want to like add just to add to the enormity of these things right like imagine a classic attraction maybe a 1955 opening day Disneyland attraction, like, I don't know, the Jungle Cruise, right? How many skippers has the Jungle Cruise been home to? Oh, gosh. And how many <laughs> how many of those skippers are integral to making the Jungle Cruise come to life? All of them. And so each and every one of them as an actor and a, a cast member, right, is responsible in some way for, like, the continued performance that is the Jungle Cruise that started in 1955. So it's just hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, On the other hand, Mm -hmm. let's think about who made the Jungle Cruise a thing. Right. Like, who made that attraction? Who is... Who is the person who said, I will create a jungle cruise? <laughs> or or another way to frame the question, uh, maybe the, the question of the episode is, who can we say is the main author of a theme park ride? Who who is who is it? Who's responsible? If if, the, if it was a book, who would the <laughs> who would the author be? And and see, that's such a interesting question because like you said we have this like instinct to want to attribute great works even if they're collaborative we want to attribute them to a person uh and this happens a lot a lot in movies so i think it's time to talk about one of our terms of the day 
and that term is the auteur theory of filmmaking. So the idea of auteur theory, um, auteur theory holds that the director who oversees all elements of the motion picture is considered to be the author of the film. Uh, more so than like the writer of the screenplay or any of the actors in performance uh, or the cinematographer or the editor or anything like that. Our, our tour theory of film suggests that the director is responsible for the film. Right. And that is a tempting way to look at many of our favorite movies, especially movies that are considered like classics, right? Like to look at them and say, ah, yes. This is the director's vision on the screen. When, I don't know, Alice, in reality, when I think about the auteur theory, I do want to acknowledge that there are directors that have very distinct styles, uh, that there are directors that have very important impacts on film, film theory, film history. Like, yes, obviously a director is a creative person, that can have a large impact on a film. However, I'm not sure I can ascribe to auteur theory because I think it's just kind of problematic for a number of reasons. The most obvious of which is a director doesn't make a film alone. Right. As, as suggested before, there's an entire army of people behind the director making a film happen. Famous auteurs in filmmaking include people like Quentin Tarantino or Wes Anderson with extremely specific like visual languages that they use in their film, where you look at a film and you go, oh, I know who directed this without even needing to read it. Um, but that... That visual language that they use was not developed in a vacuum. They have editors and designers and screenwriters and cinematographers, everybody that works with them to help them make that vision come to life. Right. Actors are creative people, too, and they add things to the director's vision along the way, even if what comes out of a film is the director's vision made manifest, it has been filtered through the lens of countless creative people. Uh, and so I feel like when we say, you know, there there are these auteurs, which is just a fancy French word for author. <laughs> but when we say that there are these auteurs of cinema, we are placing, in my opinion, too much importance on a single individual in what is by nature a collaborative art form. I don't think there can be an auteur of film unless the director is the only person who ever touches the camera, is the only person who ever appears on camera, and <laughs> is the only person who edits the film. And then we're not talking about a movie in the like popular sense of the word, we're talking about like a student art film of like some scenery <laughs> or the room by Tommy Wiseau. Well, that's true. That's <laughs> that's a true auteur masterpiece. He was the only one who had any say about what was happening in that movie. Um, uh, I I want to not argue with your point because I definitely agree that um, that auteur theory and like film scholars maybe in general tend to um, to rest too much on the shoulders of individual directors. 
Um, but I would like to suggest that maybe uh, there there are certain individual directors who are that are so I want to say maybe inspiring in their vision that they that they are able to put together a team to help them realize that vision. Um, and that that uh, that idea of like leadership of the the director putting together a putting together a team and building something that is like this is my vision and my idea uh, even if other people are helping me out with it um, and those other people are so inspired by or so like dedicated to that same vision that it might as well they might as well be an extension of that author. Uh, I wonder if that is maybe maybe closer to um, to understanding an author. I mean, I'm I'm gonna go back to Quentin Tarantino again, for example. Uh, he's such a famous example of it. He's so uh, so installed in Hollywood and so specific in his in his vision and his influences that I think at this point his creative team knows what he wants to make happen and makes it happen um almost like yeah like an extension of his very brain i i suppose is that is that the point where an author becomes an auteur maybe you know i think i think that's a really good point um and i think what what you're kind of getting at is that uh, an auteur, a good auteur, is kind of the lead singer of a great band. Yeah. Um, who who can assemble the talent around them to create the music that they envision. Yeah, because uh, there is a talent to gathering the right people around you. A, a talent in in hiring or in seeing something in somebody and making sure that they get the work. Sure. I would, I would only say that what separates an auteur in cinema from say a great uh you know lead singer of a band or like to to get another example in here uh mr john williams the one of america's greatest composers of all time yes never misses and is still creating great music Mm -hmm. uh you know john williams and his orchestra create the music but what i would say is that john williams wrote the music down and then conducted it where uh, perhaps an auteur director like read a script and was like, yeah, I'll make this. I'll make the heck out of this. And then like got on set with some actors and told them how to act while being aided by a cinematographer. And then later with the help of an editor cut the movie together, right? Like the thing that makes me skeptical of the auteur theory specifically of film is that there are so many points of failure where somebody who isn't creative and competent could ruin the auteur's vision. And I feel like, to go back to the band metaphor, you know, if your bassist isn't any good, if your drummer isn't any good, if your lead guitar isn't any good, your band isn't any good, no matter how good your lead singer is. Uh, So I feel like maybe, in conclusion, Movies mm-hmm. shouldn't be made by directors. They should be made by bands. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but really, like, you know, we don't say, ah, yes, I'm going to listen to the new Steven Tyler. We say, I'm going to listen to the new Aerosmith because it has its own identity. 
Right. Uh, and so that's that's what I'm trying to get at is that despite the fact that there are authors with or directors rather with very specific voices and creative teams that are very dedicated to putting those ideas on the screen, that doesn't mean that that creative team doesn't have to be dedicated to that. And an auteur with all of their skills and all of their charisma and all of their vision is nothing without their creative team. That's that's to me what makes an auteur theory kind of complicated. Right. I agree completely. But buddy, how does this apply to theme parks? Well, I'm glad you asked, Alice, because in theme parks, this intensely collaborative medium of creative expression that brings together all of these different areas of expertise and not to mention that is like limited by the physical world and its limitations. Um, you know, there are some people that have risen to the top that have become kind of the rock star auteurs of theme park design. Yes, and some of those people are, well, they're not household names, but in the world of, of theme park design, they really do uh, stand out and rise to the top for their, uh, for their immense individual creativity and, uh, and, and drive and, and the way that they stand out amongst a team as leaders. Um, and some of those names you, those of you listening who are theme park fans might recognize, people like Mary Blair or Joe Rohde or Harriet Burns or even, I don't know, Walt Disney himself. Yeah, he might there's count. A, there's a lot of talk about Walt Disney and the attractions that he worked on uh, versus the attractions that he did not work on. For example, Alice, we have talked about before how Pirates of the Caribbean is the last attraction that Walt had direct involvement in, uh, even though it was completed after his death. Right. Uh, so, like, that idea that, like, this great leader, uh, Walt Disney, this great author of Disneyland, uh, had influence on certain attractions and that other attractions were beyond his influence. And for some, that means they're kind of lesser than because they're not Walt Disney originals. Uh, that's interesting. Like, that's an interesting theory. And Joe Rohde is often cited as, like, the main author of uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom, right? And he did right. a lot of research and a lot of guidance, and he's got this big personality. He really stands out among Imagineers. It's a really big earring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mary Blair, you know, her art style is beyond reproach. She is among the most influential artists in theme park design by far. Uh, and Harriet Burns, uh, you, you did some research on her. Yes, I put her on the list here, specifically when I was reading her Wikipedia page. Um, Harriet Burns built the initial um, models for um, for Sleeping Beauty's castle and for the Matterhorn. Wow. Um, Harriet Burns is responsible, did a lot of like sculpting and like model making responsible for a, a lot of the early attractions that became like icons of Disneyland. So, you know, that both adds to the idea of authorship in Disney because like we have these names that we know and remember uh, but also 
it kind of takes away from it, right? Because Walt was the auteur. He was the name on the entrance to the park. And yet he was working with these other artists to create these, you know, amazing attractions that we consider very iconic of Disneyland. So was he working alone? Not really. I mean, clearly authorship in themed entertainment is a more collaborative effort, right? Right. So, Alice, that brings me to what I'm going to call, (laughs) very jokingly, uh, the Duquesne theory of authorship in theme parks, (laughs) um, which is actually stolen from the studio theory of filmmaking. One of these days, I'm going to get a theory. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get a lot of theories. I want one. Well, you know, Alice, all all you have to do is jokingly name it after yourself and then (laughs) say it on the podcast. All right. (laughs) One of these days. (laughs) Well... Okay, so here's here's the basic thesis. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. So in the early days of American cinema, when filmmaking was still expensive and required very specific equipment that could only be acquired with great investment, several huge studios rose from the ether to start creating massive amounts of entertainment. And the thing about the studio system back then is... Rather than, uh, you know, kind of get a script and then attach a director and kind of piecemeal put together crews and casts, they would just sort of use who they had already hired. They basically had a roster of directors, actors, crew members that they would just kind of throw together for every production that they had. And over time, what developed was a studio style that was very distinct to each of these studios. And that was both helpful and stifling. Helpful in that audiences would know right away when they saw a studio's logo what sort of a movie they were in for. It didn't matter the genre or who the lead actor was or even the name of the director. If it was an RKO picture, it would look, sound, and feel like an RKO picture. It was stifling because that was an incredibly mechanical way to make movies and a lot of authorship that directors, writers, actors may have wanted at the time was denied to them because they were forced to make these studio-style movies. And there weren't a lot of other opportunities to make movies that expressed things that they might have wanted to express. So when I bring this up to talk about filmmaking and I want to bring it in to talk about theme parks, uh, you know... These theme parks are these giant areas, usually, you know, comprising a lot of land with a lot of technology and, uh, you know, labor and just all of these costs that have been built up over time with great investment that not a lot of people can use expressively that have teams of people that create brands of, you know, theme parks, 
rides and attractions rather than individually authored artistic expressions of the themed attraction medium. So basically what I'm saying is the major theme park brands are more distinct than any particular artist working within them, which I know is just a a mouthful, but basically, (laughs) you know, a Disney ride looks, feels, sounds like a Disney ride and a universal ride looks, feels, sounds like a universal ride. And you can basically pick them out without knowing which one is which. Well, it's still kind of true about uh, movies and television shows, uh, not necessarily as distinct as it was back in the golden age of Hollywood. Right. Um, but nowadays you can find in in film media uh, distinct styles or distinct, um, maybe not even styles of filmmaking, but like types of films made or genres of films made by certain studios. If you think about say Netflix for example they produce all kinds of things from from uh from comedy to drama and 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 beyond science fiction and everything they create all kinds of 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 genres but they uh, but they specialize in like high budget limited series television shows that's like something that they make specifically whereas right say a tv show on the cw might make a series of kind of lower budget superhero or vampire dramas <laughs> um, very specific um but they are um they, they're made in kind of uh, kind of the the for an audience in mind the cw knows what its audience likes it likes really attractive people doing kind of um like above average things like like i don't know cw has the uh, arrow and flash series right and supergirl yes. and all of that and yes. also they made the vampire diaries and and all of those uh riverdale riverdale which is now i think on netflix but started on the cw um where they make a you know these these like really kind of <laughs> almost like dark and gritty um like uh made for you know, for teens and young adults, like genre felt like genre stories. Yeah. Um, and an NBC sitcom, on the other hand, might be. Uh, I mean, do you remember the 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 years of the NBC sitcom, which were uh, The Office, followed by Community, followed by Parks and Rec, followed by Thirty Rock. Yeah, and um, even though all of those shows are like vastly different in subject they're really similar in like tone and style yes the NBC um has a lot of like self-aware comedy um and 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 has for 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 many many years you go back to the 90s they had um Frasier and Friends for example I'm 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 pretty sure I'm remembering that right um Yeah, they had Frasier and Friends uh, in the '90s, and so kind of a kind of a winking, self-aware kind of satirical comedy is NBC's like bread and butter. Um, so, so while the studio, the big studios like uh, like RKO and MGM and and all of those those big guys from back in the day uh, are. Uh, either don't exist anymore or are making more diverse films, you still kind of find more, maybe 
those studios will partner with smaller production companies that specialize in very specific types of, of film. You've got more uh, specialty filmmakers and and companies now. Yeah, and that allows for, I, I would say, a greater diversity of voices in filmmaking, not to mention a greater diversity in the sorts of stories that get told. You're not limited to the uh, studio's resources and sets and budgets as much anymore. <laughs> right. Now you can just kind of branch out and kind of get any kind of talent, any kind of resource that you need just for the one movie. Uh, it makes them very specific feeling. Right. So and, that, that's good. And for those, like, uh, you may know who the CEO of Netflix or the CW or NBC are. You know that they're in charge of the thing. But you also know just by going into it you know that that ceo that person in charge of the thing has nothing to do with what you've just seen yeah. you may know the showrunner as the auteur dan Harmon could be the auteur of uh of community for example um but uh but but it's it's different it's not it's not um it's not it's not quite it's not quite there. Well, community is actually a really interesting example because, you know, it was very much an NBC sitcom, however unique it was in voice, um, for the first five seasons, but it also lost its showrunner for a season there and then regained its showrunner, but also lost cast members, and then also in its sixth season went to a different platform yahoo screen which no longer exists um and along that entire thread that continuity it still kind of maintained a unified style so much to the fact that you can kind of watch it all now and you can kind of notice the differences but it's still the same show right um but you know, at the same time, those differences are there. And I think a lot of it comes down to where and how the show was being run at the time. Less, uh, and, and what was less important was maybe the talent involved at the time. Um, so it's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, this also happens with video games. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking about maybe one of the biggest first party developers, Nintendo. Uh, a Nintendo product is always going to feel like a Nintendo product, right? Like, right. it's going to have that polish. It's going to have that fun kind of uh, cartoony aesthetic. Primary very, colors. Yeah, very bold, bouncy, kinetic, accessible. Even across genres, you could go from Mario to Metroid to Zelda and kind of have like, you know, all of the different kinds of adventures, but they're all going to have that same like fun focus and when you see a nintendo product it's always going to be a nintendo product it doesn't right. matter who the lead developer was it doesn't matter who the lead artist was it's a nintendo and that means something still right and 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 nobody nobody at nintendo is like a like a hot shot breakout auteur except a, a couple of like really recognizable names that come out of uh nintendo like uh miyamoto or uh sakurai but... yeah miyamoto like made mario right. right so he he gets to like be a name that we know but miyamoto isn't like making these huge decisions that are like 
changing the games industry every time he makes a game. He's just like, yeah, I know a thing or two about making games. And I work with my team at Nintendo to make more games. Right. So so what we can establish there is that name recognition or a famous individual is not the same thing as being an auteur or even an author. Just because Miyamoto is the famous name and like created the one of the most famous characters in uh, on the planet does not make Miyamoto the uh, the auteur or the author of everything that Mario's in forever. Right. I, I mean, like to even take the idea of like Mario Mario plumber from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Brooklyn, <laughs> nice <clears throat> plumber from Brooklyn. Uh, you know, like. Miyamoto was involved in the making of the original Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers, but eventually he wasn't the only one making Mario games, and an entire movie got made in America based on the Mario Brothers, to which, you know, nobody at Nintendo had any input. So, you know, <laughs> this is this is just like... You can make something and you can be involved in its creation, but it can grow beyond you and become more complex than you could possibly make on your own. And I think that really speaks to theme parks, too. Like, there is no single person determining how a theme park grows and changes over time. So we understand, we've established here, that theme parks are uh, a remarkably expensive endeavor with huge amounts of talent at every single level. And only a few companies have that resource to put it together. Um, And that each of these companies has their own specific style, which could be like the major studio that owns the the park that we're visiting to go back to, to, you know, studio theory in in Hollywood Um, and so audiences like get that everybody understands that that the studio who owns the theme park you're going to is going to have influence over what you experience and everybody's got preferences uh, and and decisions that they make over which of these experiences you want to have yeah, I mean, I mean, like, when you go to a Disney park, you expect certain things. Like, you expect that a Disney park is all about being immersed in these fantastical worlds. Uh, you expect a very particular use of sound and smell. Uh, you expect to be directed towards very iconic theme park moments. Like, even by having the car turn to point you at something very specific right you very much feel like you're along for the ride at a disney park their entire story structure is all about putting you in the place of the main character but not like making you the main character at least in classic disney attractions uh we're more along for the ride within an environment And sometimes we don't even really need a story when we're at a Disney park. And that's like a whole part of their design ethos is that like, as long as they're putting you somewhere interesting and showing you something, that's the story. 
Whereas I feel like Universal has a very distinct voice as well. Right. A lot of the Universal's style is kind of like winking at it. At, hey, you're at a theme park. Uh, it's like a little less immersive, but a little bit more participatory. Uh, the audience gets to be like an active player in the stories instead of just an uh, instead of just an observer. Uh, and stories are like explicitly stated. Um, and they use a lot of screens as, as like a tool for theming. Uh, Universal does that something's gone wrong tactic at, at pretty much every ride that you can go on there. Um, where you, the story is here you are, you yourself in a, in a world and uh, you're about to go about your everyday in-world business when all of a sudden something goes wrong. You're right. just casually visiting Hogwarts and then you're gonna hop in this bookcase and take a tour of, of, uh, of Hogwarts with your good friend Hermione Granger when all of a sudden a dragon comes. And right. you know, that, that, that like something's gone wrong tactic is is something that Universal uses a lot specifically to make you feel like you're part of the story and that's a big part of Universal's ethos as a movie studio turned theme park I mean obviously it's still a movie studio but the that that the original Universal Studios in Hollywood is still to this day an active uh you know film set and and film studio the idea is you too can step into this world onto this lot and become part of a story that's told. Um, depending on where you're at, it could be any number of stories. That's the magic of film. And I love that yeah, <laughs> personally. I, that's something that really, really, really vibes with me. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the discourse around theme parks is, you know, Disney does it right, Universal's doing something more cheap. Uh, where actually I feel like it's it's really just a difference in storytelling style. Like Disney wants to show you a place and a feeling and Universal wants to place you within a story and they want to tell you that story. Where and, and I think to some extent that kind of actually explains why Disney rides might feel like infinitely rewritable where Universal rides kind of feel a little more self-contained. Like, you ride them once and you kind of get the idea because it's a, a linear story that you've gone right. through. It's like you just watched a play, watched and participated in a play, um, and then you learned the whole plot. And how often do you want to go back and rewatch the same play over and over again? Right, exactly. And and you can want to rewatch, but I would much rather, like go to my favorite place more often than I would like to re-watch my favorite movie or play, right? right. Like, I, I think there's a difference in just tone there that, you know, lends itself to different kinds of enjoyment. So they are different. And what's great about it is that there's also, like, crossover. Like, a lot of recent Disney attractions have been really participatory. Like, where a character has turned to the audience and said, you're here. You've got to do something. Stick with us. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking about Mission Breakout. I'm thinking about Rise of the Resistance. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about uh, Smuggler's Run. Flight of Passage. Flight of Passage. It's more about you. And that's interesting to kind of see that universal style uh, seeping into the Disney style. Um, where I have seen a little bit more of the Disney style 
in some universal attractions. Uh, some of them are a little bit more about the environment and a little bit more about the place. But really, Universal is more about, you know, creating those moments and experiences that are like your favorite movies, like your favorite stories, yeah. uh, and telling something very specific about them instead of being so broad. Exactly. Let's cover just like two more really quick um, like studios in uh, like big name studios within the theme park industry. Um, smaller, I think, than, than Disney and Universal, uh, but no less uh, important or stylized uh, is uh, let's start with uh, Cedar Fair. Yeah, Cedar Fair, uh, owners of Cedar Point, most famously, but perhaps less famously, our favorite local theme park, Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah. Um, Cedar Fair is all about the thrills, right? Not a lot of animatronics, not a lot of screens, uh, not a lot of atmosphere, lots of lighting packages to kind of imply <laughs> atmosphere. Um, and in the case of Knott's Berry Farm, I think a lot of the atmosphere is down to the legacy of the place, right? Like right. The, the kind of, you know, ghost towniness of it all, where the really atmospheric rides like the Calico Mine Train or even the Mystery Lodge are kind of vestiges of a earlier era but that atmosphere is still there so i don't think cedar fair is about removing atmosphere but i don't think they do a lot of work towards creating atmosphere they would much rather create a cool ride right um, <laughs> i may be mistaken um because i've never been but uh cedar point i've heard is isn't that the the theme park that people call like basically one of the most beautiful theme parks uh, at least in in america um as far as i as far as i've heard that that cedar point res rests in like a really gorgeous part of ohio lots yes. of trees and a lot of like rolling hills and and like 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 beautiful scenery yeah and so i wonder if cedar fair's like style isn't about creating atmosphere but rather letting the atmosphere um the existing atmosphere influence you like oh that's that's a good point yeah i mean it, that 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 would apply to Cedar Point and Knott's Berry Farm. Like, Knott's Berry Farm was already a thing. Cedar Fair grabs it and goes, you know what? Let's let the atmosphere of Knott's Berry Farm and of the city of Buena Park and the history of California influence you while you're here. We did, yeah. They didn't need to build anything to get there. Yeah, Cedar Point really does feel like it's kind of... Uh, it's, it's finding its own place within existing atmosphere. I think that's a really good way to put it. Um... And that's, yeah, that's exactly what they did with Knott's. I think they did an okay job with it, too. Like, since it has become a Cedar Fair property, Knott's has become a more thrill-focused park. But also a lot of the stuff that makes it unique, that makes it Knott's, right, <laughs> uh, has really stuck around. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think yeah, you, you nailed it. They try to work within their existing atmosphere rather than creating something very uh i don't know measured specific uh limited uh they, they try to work within it and i think they do they do a pretty good job yeah and and it's always fun yeah and that that that's the the core the core of that 
Um, and, and just one last little studio, li- just a little studio just you may have guy. heard of called Six Flags. Oh, yeah. I love heard of Six Flags. Big fan of Six Flags. Six Flags uh, prides itself on having some of the some of the largest and most exciting thrills. Um, but their atmosphere that they create, at least at Magic Mountain and what I've seen at a couple from pictures from a couple other Six Flags locations, um, is that it's all about the big thrills but creating kind of a, um, like a county fair vibe, games and, and shops and, and kind of, um, like homegrown, uh, like style and vibes, uh, that, that occasionally steps into some very heavy Warner Brothers branded content. Um, lots and lots of, uh, DC superheroes at, uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain, for example. Yeah. Um, but but that the theming isn't as important as it is um, as it is the thrills and giving you some kind of fun stuff to look at. Yeah, uh, where we might see a couple of legacy dark rides at a Cedar Fair park. Six Flags might have one or two dark rides per park because dark rides just aren't that thrilling. No, uh, and we've got got to have more thrills <laughs> at a Six Flags, sure. Six Flags Park, yeah. And Six Flags will have like some classic, uh, use the frit county fair uh, attractions again. They'll have like the uh, dragon boat, or uh, you know some swings, or just a basic like uh, like spinny ride, just a really or a gravitron style ride. You know, ones that you would find set up at any old county fair, but you know, bigger, better, and more permanently placed. Definitely safer. <laughs> but it gives you kind of a classic Americana, like, like this is what this is what theme parks look like to a lot of the a lot of the country. Um, a theme park is something that sets up a like a super easy ride that just throws you around and makes you feel like an adrenaline rush. Yeah. And that is there's something really nice about that too. Yeah. I love Six Flags. Gosh, I love a roller coaster. I'm a big old adrenaline junkie. Um, I don't go to Disneyland for uh, for adrenaline rushes. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you did, you would be disappointed. And I I, actually, I have heard from people that are disappointed in that way because they're expecting when they hear the words theme park or they hear the words roller coaster or thrill ride, they're like, "Oh shoot, like a like a Six Flags, right?" But no. They're nothing alike. <laughs> um, nothing at Disney e- even approaches something that you might see at a Six Flags. Um, there are similar classic style rides and attractions, but they're always more accessible, more family friendly, more highly themed. Um, and I think Six Flags is the thrilliest of thrill parks, no matter where <laughs> you are. Um, and so I think that's really important. Now, Alice... We've done a good job. We came up with Duquesne's theory of theme park authorship, which is the company is what's important, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. However, <laughs> uh, I'm wrong. Oh, oh, you are. <laughs> yeah, it turns out I'm I'm wrong though, uh, because there are examples that uh, completely toss this idea out, and that actually kind of support authorship. Um, like the auteur theory of theme parks. And those are usually your smaller, more personal parks. Uh, One example 
that we covered, wow, years ago <laughs> on this very podcast is the train town in Sonoma, Sonoma's train town. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you, this was, you and Kate Prince went there. Yeah, and it was a delightful day. Um, but this is a, you know, a tiny, tiny theme park out in Sonoma where a single man, one person, you know, bought and built increasingly elaborate trains, model trains, uh, and a few life-size trains, uh, and turned that into an attraction. And that's very much the authorship of one person. And since his eventual demise, his family has taken over and continued to run it in the way that they guessed that he would. So, like, that's an authored theme park, right? Like, I, this is yeah. one person's idea of what a theme park should be. Um, well, if indeed uh, you can argue that the the gentleman who came up with the idea for Train Town in Sonoma uh, was the auteur of that theme park, um, then what about Walt Disney? What about Mr. Walt Disney himself? Walt Disney, who bought ex increasingly expensive and extensive train sets until eventually he had to turn it into an attraction. Oh, wait, that's... In Anaheim, California. That's like a little bit what he did, yeah. That's almost but... exactly what he did. <laughs> yes, uh, but then he became the figurehead and face of basically the biggest, most famous theme park and series of theme parks uh, on the planet. That's true. What about Walt Disney? I think if Walt were here on this conversation, he might say something like, uh, to all who come to this happy place, welcome. Wait, that's Wait. how we got the title of this podcast. What? <laughs> I think he might say something like, yes, I invented Disneyland. It, it's got my name on it. It's a place that I had an idea for that I wanted to make a reality. You know, I worked really hard. I scrapped and saved. I nearly went bankrupt trying to put this place together. It was a disaster in 1955 when it opened. It is much more successful now. I didn't do it alone. Uh... Well, he might not say that. He, he might claim to, to be the sole author. But, you know, from what I can tell, you know, early conversations about Disneyland, Walt was always talking about how he was involving artists and animators and architects and modelers. Like, that was like part of the selling point is that there were like talented people from the film studio working with him on this project, this new thing in entertainment. And I think Walt might have seen himself more like a figurehead, a studio head, you know, in charge of making a bunch of movies. And But those movies were actually attractions. They were actually rides, right? Like, right. they were living movies. Right, uh, but and, then... Uh, Kind of like a studio head brings in the same group of creatives and crew and builders and whatnot to make them all happen. 
um, kind of like we said, the golden age of Hollywood in the studio system worked, right? You've got a roster of people that work on your thing. And yeah. so he had like a group of people that were working on his thing. You know, at the time, Walt was working with basically the same people over and over again to create Disney's animated films. Um, you know, and and a lot of those people crossed over into working on Disneyland. Like, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say what's important about Disneyland as like an aesthetic isn't Walt Disney himself. Walt Disney was a moderately successful cartoonist before he became you know walt disney of disney you know like there's a, there's a difference here and he his talent like you said was in pulling people around him to create unified visions that he could sell and i think that's he's not an author he's a producer <laughs> he's an executive <laughs> Um, and he's a personality. He's a person onto whom we can pin uh, a lot of the achievements of countless of other creative people. And that's, you know, that saying that now, that sounds a little sinister, right? Like, well, it's taking all the credit. But <laughs> at the same time, Walt is doing the important work of making all of it happen in a coordinated way. And that can't be understated as like a project lead. Right. Uh, and he is ponying up a lot of the cash. So like, okay, he's a capitalist too. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there is a certain Disney-ness about it all because he does have a guiding hand on a lot of these projects. So if what we're here... What would he say? Well, actually, like, wait a second. He's not here. He's not. Right? I, does he have a say in anything? <laughs> I mean, I mean, not physically. <laughs> right. Uh, no, uh, Walt Disney, uh, you know, he he passed away a long time ago. But yeah. the 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 property, what he's built, what he's made, what he what he put together what he produced is still running and people running it claim to be working under his uh under his vision maybe um they they you know they want to keep to his spirit they say that a lot and we want to hold Walt's spirit in this we want you know what we we want to do something that would have made him proud kind of thing but uh, but no, he does not get a say in it. He's not here. <laughs> you know what, Alice? This actually brings me to another bigger, maybe more like contemporary question. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually a little worried about this. I don't know if we can talk about it out here on the podcast. Do you want to take a quick aside? Oh, um, yeah. Let's uh, let's go into your office. It's right there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on over. So, okay. Here we go. Were you followed? Uh, no, no, it's, we are alone. <laughs> okay, I will light the torch now. Oh, oh, ooh. Uh, and, okay, so it is oh on fire. Yes, wow. And in, in the flickering light of the torch, you will be able to see here in the center of the room, I have um, some stuff. Oh, yeah. I think I recognize some of this stuff. 
Yeah. This so- appears to be everything you've ever ever owned that is branded by the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Yes. It is books, uh, shirts, video games, including Quidditch World Cup 2002. The greatest video game ever made, yes. Available now for the Nintendo GameCube. Uh, <laughs> you know, Alice, I, I have a problem. Uh-huh. And all of this stuff I acquired um, and I like it. It's it's good stuff that I enjoy. Uh, and, you know, actually, there's a couple of uh, theme park souvenirs in here. Oh, a couple yes. of things from, from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter now open at Universal Studios Hollywood and Orlando. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's a wand in there and stuff. And, and you know, it's very important to me pers- personally, but uh, the author of these things mm. has said some stuff um, recently and I guess for a while now. Yeah. She has said some very transphobic things. Yes. Let uh, me take a moment to say trans rights. Trans rights. Those happy places says trans rights. Right. Um, uh, and and I'm upset uh, because uh, not only are all these things great and I don't want them anymore. I've just kind of got them in a pile here mm-hmm. because of the stuff that the author has said. But yep. also like one of the world's most impressive themed environments is based on this stuff. I know. Uh, and, you know, those places are important to us, are important to the show. Uh, and I wonder a little bit what what it means that they were written by somebody, that they were authored by somebody with uh, these bad views that you know is actively harming people that we care about uh, and it's it's making me wonder like can I go back to these places and enjoy them? Oh jeez I know it's a tough question This is a huge question and one that I don't think we two cis people sitting here in your very poorly lit office right, it's can just the answer torch. I know <laughs> Uh, I don't think we can just answer that right now. The The problem stems from being able to separate um, the author or the uh, artist and the art. Um, and this is an, an age-old question that we've been struggling with as people for, for many, many, many years. Is yeah. at what at what point does uh, does something stop being? Uh, connected to the person who made it. Um, yeah. Some people would say never. Um, some people would say the second they've no longer they're no longer working on it. The the schools of thought are so different and so varied, and all of them have s- like really really important thoughts and conversations and and, and opinions to be had. Um, I don't know if I can say which one is true and which one is not true. I also do not feel qualified to answer this question. Uh, I, I think this question is is so big, but I do have some like I do have some ways that I have been thinking about it that I would like to share with you here now in my office. Oh, great! Uh, now we're talking about a concept that's known as death of the author, right? Yes. For death of the author to occur, the author does not need to die. 
Uh, <laughs> death of the author just means that once a work is out beyond the hands of an author, that it is no longer important what the author says about the work. Right. Death of the author um, holds that an author's um, like intentions or and biographical facts about the author, like their politics or religion, should hold no special weight in determining an interpretation of their writing. So if you're the the death of the author, people who subscribe to the theory of the death of the author um, say that the second that it is written down, uh, the author's personal feelings and opinions don't matter to the story or to the art. That you can take it and approach it from your own point of view, and that is just as valid of an interpretation. Uh, in fact, more valid of an interpretation than than reading it from the author's point of view. Yeah, a, a couple of famous examples, for example. Um, <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien uh, often would claim after the release of Lord of the Rings that there was nothing allegorical or symbolic about the War of the Ring, that right. it had nothing to do with his experiences in the war. He, that, said, he said that a lot. <laughs> that said, clearly these books are about war, right? Like, there's yes. a lot there that, that supports the idea that, that war is being discussed. Uh, not the least of which is that the books are about a war, but also that there's, like, very clear symmetry between the War of the Ring and the World War One. <laughs> right. And you, if you were reading into it, if you re read some of the passages where he talks about things that are uh, important to the characters, you see a passion in in the things they care about, which are like which are peace and nature and not war. <laughs> and um, and so and so you say, hey, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, you wrote this about war and as anti-war sentiment. And he says, no, I did not. <laughs> um, it does our reading it as anti-war sentiment um, uh, matter more than his intention of it not being anti-war sentiment. And that's what Death of the Author... Death of the Author says that our reading of it is is the only important one. And so I, I don't necessarily subscribe to Death of the Author as like a, um, oh no, the author's intentions are never relevant. That's what that's what the death of the author implies that the author's intentions, politics, religion, etc., are never relevant. Sure, I don't agree with that at all. No. I think that often the author's intentions are extremely relevant. Um, but I would I I struggle to say that the author's intentions um, are always relevant. I think there's a lot of gray area here. Yeah, and I don't think the author's intentions always matter, but also that an author with very vocal intentions and politics and and just the worst just worst, the worst takes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I feel like that can definitely affect how a work can be read, and it has made me wonder more and more than ever about the wizarding world like is there something in here that needs to be questioned before i can engage with it again uh and it, it's such a difficult question um and so so to take it back to theme parks and the wizarding world of harry potter now open at universal orlando and hollywood uh 
how much do you think those are authored works in the sense that one author by the name of J.K. Rowling wrote them and made them come into existence? Well, if we extrapolate from our conversation about Walt Disney, the answer could be extremely authored. It's, it's, it is entirely valid to look at the theme park or the, the theme park land, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and see only an extension of the author. Um, the author who wrote who wrote the books, all, all of them, who was involved in the filmmaking and who, from all accounts that I can find on the internet, was extremely involved in some in a lot of the design work of the theme park. Um, from from what I can tell, she was personally responsible for a lot of the snacks that are served that are for a lot of the soundscapes for uh, some of the merch um, and and apparently and i don't i i don't know how true this is but designers and and producers from universal i'll say in interviews that she was uh directly involved with a lot of the production so but directly involved does not mean that she got on her hands and knees and poured concrete and and nailed you know boards together to build facades of these of these shops that she named and invented but she did not she did not herself build them. She didn't create them. She's getting paid for the rights and licenses, but other people who maybe probably don't agree with her sentiments are getting paid to build and create and staff and maintain and work. And um, and and lots of people at Universal and at Warner Brothers and at, uh, you know, all of these Scholastic and, and Bloomsbury Press and all of these other companies that are involved in making this happen to making the the theme park happen to making the merchandise happen and the food and the snacks and the butterbeer and all of this happen they're not all of them jk rowling and they're not all of them uh you know anti-trans and they're not you know they can't be <laughs> right um so when you give them money to eat a snack or to uh enter a theme park who who are you supporting in this who you know and that that's i think a personal question to ask you know yourself instead of you know we can't answer that for you but uh, we can't tell you to stop reading harry potter we can't tell you to um you know to stop giving your money to universal for supporting it you know like that that's god that's not something that we can decide for anyone but it's a conversation worth having with yourself when you when you walk into a space like that yeah or when you look at the things that you already own or throw them into a pile in the middle of your office but you know i i will confess that this question is the one that made me ask the question at the top of the episode. It, it's this idea of authorship, especially in the case of the wizarding world, is so complicated. The amount of people involved is so large. And yet the the money that has been exchanged, the you know support that has been given, has been directed towards one individual who 
we now know has these awful views. Really, and has really refused, icky. And has refused to change in the face of international backlash. And I don't know. It It's to drop the act a little bit and, and kind of leave the office. It, it just makes me wonder, you know, what are the limits of death of the author? Like what, how, what are the limits of authorship in general? Uh, and when something leaves you, when you put something out there for people to enjoy and interpret and hopefully learn from and gain, gain important experience from, and you know, when it leaves you, it, it does become greater than you. That part about death of the author, I do believe. Right. Like a work is more than the author. And this place that I have felt important things about and these books that I felt important things about and these films that I felt important things about and this video game, Quidditch World Cup. The greatest the video game, game ever Cube, made. I felt important things about it. And it, it makes me sad uh, that those feelings are now made complicated. But also, one thing I am glad about is that, you know, I have you and this conversation and this time to explore that complication and to try to reckon with it on a personal level and that's what we all have to do reckon with it on a personal level and support the people that we care about and support the rights of everybody trans rights trans rights uh and so to leave this painful space behind uh let me ask a question about Walt Disney. So Walt makes a place with the help of countless others, highly publicized. Uh, and it opens to first a disaster and then, and then massive success. Uh, and now there's all of this talk about Walt's legacy or whatever, right? And what Walt would want and, the idea of Disneyland, but one important thing that Walt said about Disneyland is that Disneyland is not finished and will never be right. Right. You know, Walt was working on the Florida project at the time of his death. He could not have imagined what Walt Disney world would become. Uh, because he didn't have the scope. He didn't have the ideas. He didn't know of the technology that was coming up. He didn't know about all the people that would be born and love these places long after his death. He didn't know what podcasts were and <laughs> the fact that we could make them yeah. about him. Yeah. And and I think that's like death of the author is sometimes helped by time and space because there's no way these places are authored by Walt Disney anymore. It's just, it simply, it does not make sense. We have the works of Walt, we have recordings and writings of Walt, but we don't have the person 
here and now to tell us what he would have wanted. Not that he was ever the only person in control, right? right? So since his demise, Walt Disney has not been in charge of Disneyland at all. Shocker. Yeah, he's, it has been it has been opened up to new artists to interpret, new engineers to create within, new architects to design, and new workers to build and maintain and run, and new fans to experience. So I think in answer to my question, is Walt in charge of anything? Does he have any say at all? Uh no. You know, he he had an idea uh, and he had he had the resources to make it happen. But he's not the guy that uh, makes it real anymore. And I think that's cool about theme parks, actually, is that yeah. these physical spaces that outlive us uh, and that grow and change and, and keep on building, moving forward, as he might have said. uh so yeah who is the author of disneyland it's complicated it's super complicated everything is complicated and these are all conversations that are worth having with the community and with yourself everything we've covered here about about death of the author and authorship in general and the auteur theory and all of this is is something that is incredibly um it's subjective. None of these things have to be true. Death of the author is 20th century literary criticism. It's not fact. It's not like indisputable. Um, none of none of this is. It's just a conversation. It's a it's a theory. It's about what you think and what you want to hold in your in your heart. If you want to cancel the Wizarding World of Harry Potter forever, you are totally in within your right to do that. If you want to just cancel J.K. Rowling in your heart and continue engaging with the with the world and with the universe and these books that mean a lot to a lot of people, you are absolutely within your right to do that. And if you want to uh, to rant and rave on Twitter about whether or not Walt Disney would have approved of. Uh, Tron cycles being put in at, at Walt Disney World, like that's also entirely your your prerogative. That's your business, and that's your that's your interpretation of it. Would, would Walt have, Disney have approved way. of this? Would Walt <laughs> Disney have approved of that? He's all about brand integration, actually. <laughs> Walt Disney loves that stuff. Loved <laughs> that stuff. Um, but you know, and everybody likes to think that they know. You know, what Walt Disney would he have uh, allowed Ogus Cantina to serve alcohol? on the premises uh, of Disneyland, you know, because apparently he said once that he thought that was not cool, but it would have been gourmet cigarettes only, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, we don't know what he would have said. Now we don't know what he, you know, if he would have seen the, you know, the fact that Ogus Cantina makes a ton of money selling cocktails, you know, would he have been like, Oh, well, that's a good idea. Actually, (laughs) you know, we don't know. We don't know what he would have thought. And we're not in his, we're not in his mind and he's not here to tell us. And so, you know, you can experience his authorship in your way. I agree. You know, Alice, there's one more question here uh, that 
I think actually you wanted to ask in this yeah. episode. Yeah, I want to ask this question. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. This episode's already pretty long. Um, and maybe this is a, a quick question for you and a big question for the community. But um, I started thinking about uh, the auteurs and I started thinking about who who wrote Disneyland, who invented <laughs> Disneyland, um, who was the author of Disney. And we mentioned some really important names earlier, Mary Blair uh, and uh, Joe Brody and Harriet Burns and other like really important, really fame, really famous Imagineers. And it got me thinking about the idea of Imagineers in general um, and the kind of the prestige that goes along with being an Imagineer and the um, the importance of the work that they do and how influential they are and how many people, you know, mostly, uh, you know, little Disney fans like we were growing up as, as little kids go into the parks and, and learning what an Imagineer is. And we go, I want that. I want to be that when I grow up. And it's like this an elite group of of people that exist, uh, but we only know a handful of their names. And really, we only know a handful of like the original ones, ones that worked back in the, you know, back in the day on the original park. Um, so I want to ask the question, or I want to explore the idea that the Imagineers as like a concept or as like a group are now considered the auteur. Uh, of of the theme parks like has the name imagineer and the popularity of the job title transcended everything and is now so much its own entity that they collectively are the auteurs of disneyland no individual anymore is now as famous as any of the originals uh no individual um Imagineer alive and working right now is as famous. Maybe, you know, we can flash forward 50 years in the future and maybe one of them, you know, shines. Um, but we don't know their name right now. We we know a couple of names of a couple of people that work there. Um, but but if you go follow the Imagineers on, on Instagram, they post a lot of group shots. They spend a lot of time talking about the Imagineers as like a group of people that all work together as a team to create something and they create everything at the at the Disney parks. So are they the imagineers as a collective the uh, the authors of Disneyland, the auteurs of Disneyland if you will. I love this question because I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I think yes, like the imagineer, the rank of imagineer is something to aspire to. It's something that means a lot to a lot of people as a concept, even. Like, oh, they're not just engineers. They're Imagineers. Like, they're <laughs> making something big, grand, fantastic that I can live and experience. That's something so special that they get to do. Uh, and, and no other company has branded their, like attractions creative division as well as disney has with their their imagineers <laughs> uh I, I believe the uh name for universal's equivalent is like the universal creative group right like that that's a, that's a fine name but it's not the imagineers right <laughs> right uh and there's there's something to that 
like that idea. It, it, but like you said, even the Imagineers whose names we know today, they're like project leads, right? They're like the, the big names that get attached to a project. They're a lot like film directors because they're working with huge teams beneath them and uh, beside them that are creating other things uh, you know in accordance with a vision that they might have or just with you know a project that they've been handed um i wonder how often an imagineer is like yes now my grand design for the frozen ride will come to fruition so often as they're given like hey we want to turn this into the frozen ride can you make that happen <laughs> yes sir like i'll do my best right right um and so it's a little it's a little sketchier than like this person is the author of this ride or this group makes all of the rides happen but also the imagineers really feel like a place to place authorship for the parks it's like a who makes the parks well all the imagineers do and that's actually more satisfying than CEO of Disney, you know, Bob Iger or Bob Chapek, depending on the week, um, <laughs> you know, they make the parks happen. Like, no, they don't. Right. Like <laughs> they they kind of, you know, give a direction to somebody who gives a direction to somebody and it gets filtered down and the Imagineers make it a reality. Right. Right. Uh, and so I think that's a pretty good answer, actually. Who makes the parks? The Imagineers make the parks. Um, and, you know, at Universal, it's the creative group. And, you know, in, at Six Flags and Cedar Point, it's uh, whoever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everybody's got an equivalent. Uh, and I think the big groups of people who make the creative choices, I think that's a that's a good answer to the authorship of theme parks, actually. For all the dramatics of this episode uh, <laughs> and all of the all of the questions that we've raised, probably the most accurate answer is a lot of people are the author of theme parks. Um, yeah. And and that's good, honestly. Yeah, I think that's the the that's the best possible answer. I like the idea of of a theme park. We've talked about it before that theme parks should be a, a, a shared experience, um, something that you want to enjoy with other people. Um, and the fact that it was also created by a team of people working together um, is like really satisfying. I agree. <laughs> well, Alice, it sounds like our conversation about theme parks and authorship has come to an end. But the conversation, as always, continues online. On the internet, the world's greatest theme park. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can always find us on Twitter. Uh, you know, almost constantly are we checking Twitter uh, to stay up to date on all of the news about theme parks recently. Um, but also just to hang out and, and see the fun stuff. Yes, we are always on Twitter. I'm literally never not on Twitter. I'm on Twitter right now. And I'm on, <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Alice White THP for those happy places. And I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And you can find the show on Twitter also at Happy Places Pod. And if you follow the show on Twitter or either of us on Twitter, whichever one you like better, follow us on follow us on Twitter and one of us will send you a link to our Discord server. 
yeah, our Discord server is a great place to talk with other fans of our show or other fans of theme parks in general. We've got channels for all sorts of topics, uh, including our other show, Rogue Fun, a podcast story. Yes, Rogue Fun, a podcast story. Uh, the July episode is live. August episode coming soon. Uh, you won't want to miss it. We're talking about the Battle of Scarif now. Uh, every every month until the end of time, talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So uh, <laughs> you definitely want to check that out. Yeah, we're finishing the movie in the next three months or so. Uh, and, you know, coming up after that is all of the kind of attached ephemera of Rogue One. I can't wait. Uh, it's going to be such a joy. Yes, to continue have, to make that show. We have so much good stuff lined up, both over at Rogue Fun and right here on Those Happy Places. And if you want to be the first to hear about it, you've got to join our Discord server. Yes, that is the place to hear about all upcoming things that we are creating. And you know what? On our Discord server, you can achieve the rank of Pass Holder, which will give you access to uh, several uh, Pass Holder-only channels, uh, and it gives your name a different color on the Discord server. Um, and the only way to become a pass holder is by uh, subscribing to us on Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go if you'd like to support the show monetarily. Um, we have some amazing, amazing supporters on, on Patreon who have chosen between a couple of tiers that we have on here. We've just restructured the whole dang thing. So if you've thought about supporting us before, uh, but wasn't sure if it was worth it, go check out patreon.com slash those happy places now and check out the new tiers and rewards that we have available. Um, once we reach a certain point, we may be rolling out things like t-shirts or other merch that could be coming down the pipeline, uh, but we do need your support to make that happen. Yeah, we actually only need a few more patrons to uh, release our first t-shirt design. We're actually going to commission it from somebody who's good at graphic design because <laughs> we aren't. Uh, but uh, it's going to say praise the Omnimover and it's going to be awesome. Yes. Uh, so if you want to head on over to uh, patreon.com slash those happy places and check out all of the rewards tiers. Alice, we actually have a list of patrons that we want to thank who are donating to us at the Passholder Select level or above. Right, the Passholder Select level or above. We're going to read a list of names on every show we do, everybody who's at this level, and, and thank you all um so so much for uh for for being here for us for subscribing and helping us out um you're you're the very best so here's the here's the list of absolutely amazing people um first up we have re j we have april l jim c ian e kate p oslam c nick h aj g and charles g are our superheroes uh, at the at the patron at the passholder select and above level? Just amazing folk all around. All of you are gentle people and scholars. We could not do this show without your support. It is so wonderful to have just a, a group of people who like what we do so much that they are able to. Uh, you know, dedicate some money to helping us continue to make it. So thank you to each and every one of you. 
and you know, even if you can't donate right now to our Patreon, the best way to support the show is to spread the word about it. Uh, we know it's tough times, but the more ears we can get on the podcast, the better the show will become. I just know it. Absolutely. So thank you all. Thank you for considering. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks. Just, just thank you. This is the, the one of the great joys of my life, making this podcast. Um, and it's uh, made even better by uh, listeners like you. Yes, thank you to all of you. Now, Alice, I'm going to add some music to this episode. Oh, good. I love music. Where would that music have come from, buddy? All of the music that I use comes from Kevin McLeod. Uh, his music is all available at incompetech.com. We use this music under a Creative Commons 4.0 license, which simply asks that we list the tracks in the show notes and that we thank Kevin in the episode. So thank you, Kevin, for all of the amazing music that you provide to us and the people of the Internet, the world's greatest theme park. Yes, thank you. Thank, uh, thank you, Kevin McLeod. And you know who we haven't thanked in a minute? is uh we haven't thanked v silverman for our amazing show art oh yeah our show art uh you know alice you and i are not good at graphic design it's true <laughs> and v is and uh yeah they made an amazing piece of show art for us so thank you v for yes. the show art thank you v and uh wow i hear this amazing music ramping up it sounds like our theme music Oh, our theme music, which is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers, featuring Phil Alvin. Yes, the very same. This music and so much more you can find on their website, thecaliforniafeetwarmers.com. You know, Alice, every time I hear this song, even when I'm not doing this podcast, I get nostalgic for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's so great to have this show to share it with you, my best friend and favorite co-host. Thank you for being on this episode with me. Uh, thank you for having this conversation with me and for for everything that you do. This show is one of the great joys of my life. And I, I love making it and I love making it with you. And even when we have to talk about the hard stuff, um, there's no one I'd rather talk about the hard stuff with than you. Thank you. Uh, and to everyone out there... Thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places. <laughs> <laughs>